Hey everybody, welcome to episode three of the Movement as Medicine podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Carr. In this week, Brendan and I talked about the idea of minimum effective dose. One of our listeners asked us to talk about this idea and how you can think about applying it to both your gen pop clients as well as with your athletic population. Additionally, we had another uh, listener request to talk about how to find your niche in strength conditioning and fitness. And this talk to turn into a really good discussion about how to build a career and how to work with your ideal population and how to market your business to do so. So I think this was a really good episode. It's about an hour long and thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy. All right. Uh, welcome to episode three of the Movement is Medicine podcast with me, Kevin Carr, and my amazing co-host, Brendan Rerick. Uh, how you Great. doing today, buddy? I'm great. I was amazing last time, so I'm amazing this time. I know. I, I didn't. I, I had to think of a different uh, adjective for right. you. You have, to, you have to make a morning, running so. list. Start checking um, them off. So, well, every, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the first two episodes. Uh, we got some great feedback, some good constructive criticism, uh, some good questions, which are the questions we get if you guys drop them in the comments, either on Instagram or YouTube or um, even on Apple Podcasts and the reviews, which we would love if you leave some <laughs> reviews and, and rate us. Um, really help us to continue to improve the podcast. It also gives us material from week to week. So we actually got some great questions this past week that are really going to be what we use to kind of fuel the content this week. So we had uh, a couple great questions. One was, can you guys talk a little bit about, about the idea of minimum effective dose? And that's something we talk a lot about uh, when training our adult clients, as well as training our athletes at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning. And so I think it's a, it's a good topic to touch on and figure out how we can be as efficient and effective as possible in the little bit of time that we typically have with our clients, as well as the, the second question was how to find your niche, your how niche. to find your niche, niche, however you want to niche, pronounce it. Niche, um, <laughs> They're all acceptable. And, and that's something we get. Pronunciation. <laughs> that's something we get a lot from young coaches, especially like our interns at MBSC or people we run into at CFSC events. And so I think we could dive into those two topics today for a good hour or so and hopefully share some of our perspectives on both. I don't know how you got wrapped into being the in, in running the introductions, but you are you've now taking that that baton and I'm not doing it. So great introduction. You've established, established yourself myself. as the as the Buffett of MAM podcast. Yep, that's my role. That's I almost my said role, Jimmy so. Buffett. What's well, his, uh, the, the announcer guy? Warren Buffett. Warren? Oh, Michael, oh, Michael Buffer. Buffer. Not Buffett. Michael Buffer. Yeah, I, Warren. I wish I was. I wish I was Warren. I wish I was Warren Buffett, Brendan. I, I wouldn't be doing podcast. I wouldn't be on here with yeah, you this no, morning. I'd be on my yacht. Um, yeah. So, um, but all right. Let's uh, let's dive right into the minimum effective yeah. dose idea. And this is something that, you know, I talked about this in my presentation yesterday. I'm currently down in Orlando for the Raise the Bar Summit, hence my different background in the Celeste Hotel here. Pretty nice hotel. Um, but it's a topic I dove into yesterday um, when we were talking about the functional training anatomy lecture. We we're talking about single leg training, really. And part of the reason we prefer unilateral approaches is mainly because of the efficiency. Um, when you look at, you know, the Alex Natera research and we look at, we can get, you know, the same amount of force production um, when we train on one leg with like a 50% body weight external load as you could get 
with a double body weight back squat external load, it's kind of a no-brainer, especially when you're training athletes who have a bunch of competing demands, right? Like training isn't their only thing that they do every single day, right? Um, I think it's it can be tough when you have these people who are really influenced by strength sports or just want to get really jacked uh, or really strong. They can put all of their effort into just the work in the weight room. Um, and when you're, but when you're training athletes or you're training general population, people who might have other things to do in their life, like go to work or play recreational sports or do whatever else that they love to do, they're really only going to commit so much time and energy to training. So with the average client only really coming two or three days a week at most, how can we be as effective as possible with as little work as possible? Um, so that it doesn't interfere with their other competing demands and we can get the most out of the time that they spend with us. The analogy that Mike always uses, and the first time I had ever heard him talk about it was, if you have a headache, do you take two Advil or do you take the whole bottle? Right, Because at some point, <laughs> there is the law of diminishing returns. So I eat five Oreos, I'm pretty satisfied with my Oreo intake. Or if I eat the entire... That's, it, that's your Oreo level is five? Because for me, once the bag yeah. is opened, well, it's, uh, it's, we're going downhill. Ariel actually bought double stuffed Oreos last week, and it's a complete nightmare <laughs> because once they're in the house... Well, this is just gone. supposed to be an example, but... Um, at some point there is a law of diminishing returns after you eat so many Oreos. Cause if you eat the entire bag, you then feel sick. If you had a whole, if you took the whole thing of Advil for your headache, you now have new problems, right? So there's a minimal effective dose that we can also apply to fitness and exercise. Uh, it is context dependent. So what your goals are, and as you've mentioned, what you're doing outside of the gym or what you're doing outside of your your current exercise regimen. Uh, you don't want your the fitness that you're trying to gain or the exercises you're doing to ruin everything else that you have going outside of the gym. The whole point of exercise is to be fit for a certain task. Right. So task, you could also replace with the word goal. Um, so if my goal is to be a better athlete, then absolutely crushing myself at the gym with super heavy weights and uh, really long, crazy workouts is not what we want. Because if we go over that effective dose, then now I've jeopardized my abilities as an athlete or as a, mm -hmm. uh, a functioning human <laughs> to society. So if I need to go to work, I need to play with my kids. Um, so th there's a law of diminishing returns for fitness. More is not better. Better is better. More is not better. Better yeah, is I better. Always, I always go back to the... Um... The quote, Tony Holler, really stuck with me when we first got into the feed the cats idea. And for those of you listening who don't know who Tony Holler is, definitely look him up if you work with athletes. He's a high school uh, track coach. 
And he kind of like rocked the boat when he came to MPSC to do a presentation. Like Mike brought him in intentionally to kind of rattle us because he doesn't really encourage his athletes to lift. He doesn't discourage it, but he's not like making them lift weights because he trains sprinters. And he has really gone down the path of like um, high quality, low volume work. They do multiple times sprints every day. They work on sprint technique and then they shut it down. They're not running like extensive 400s or 800s. Like if you anybody listening to this, you know, trained with any old school track and field coaches like I did uh, in high school, like there was a ton of volume. Um, and over time, that breaks you down. And it really doesn't help you get faster. So I remember the quote that he said during a uh, podcast once was like, we're trying to train racehorses, mm -hmm. not workhorses. And when you're developing athletes, there's a lot of junk volume often that gets in the way of them recovering um, and actually getting better because our job is really to help these athletes recover in between high bouts of high intensity activity, right? So that then they can be ready to perform when they need to, not just to make them uh, workout right. heroes. And, you know, I think again, with fitness, there's always that more is better mindset from the traditional uh, kind of fitness approaches again, because most people are just training to get better at fitness or training to get more jacked or training to get really strong, not necessarily training for that task or that goal, like you mentioned. And you have to take into account the mindset of the client as well. Like they don't really care about working out like we do. They just want to come in and get it done in the two hours and check the box and, and get a little bit better. They don't really care about doing a ton of volume or, or, you know, getting really strong. And so it's important for us to figure out with their mindset, like what are they willing to commit? two hours a week, likely, how can we get the most out of that little bit of time? And then choosing the approaches that give us that minimum effective dose of the best desired outcome in that, that minimal amount of time. That's what I was trying to say in my initial monologue. <laughs> you just said it, you just said it much more eloquently I liked it. I liked than it. I did. Uh, the, the common theme among the first two podcasts has been playing the long game versus the short game and <clears throat> minimal effective <laughs> dose allows you a play allows you to play the long game so if i have say there's 365 days in a year and i'm going to work out 200 of them minimal effective dose allows you to have 200 good better and best workouts if i'm always going for broke i'm going to have one good workout and then five the re the other next five are going to suffer <laughs> because I went over the effective dose for what my said goals or said task was, right? Which is like you're saying, most people, it's just to feel better and look better. You don't need a crazy amount of volume to do that. And this mm -hmm. is the Charlie Francis approach. So if anyone is familiar or not familiar with Charlie Francis, he was the sprint coach or speed coach for uh, the Canadian sprint team in the 90s right am i correct there canadian right who's canadian sprint coach yeah yeah ben, yeah, johnson. ben johnson most people know him because of ben johnson yes. unfortunately but uh, i mean that his first book the uh charlie Fran francis speed yeah. training book it's, is one it's of the best charlie francis around. it's still, still charlie francis still training hits. systems is the book and it's about mm -hmm. you only train above 90 percent, so minimal effective mm -hmm. dose and you only train until the rep or the, the the last sprint starts to decline. So at some point you get below 90%, the training is over. And 
most people would be like, that's that. No, I have to do eight reps. And Charlie would say, no, you run as many reps as you can above 90%. And when you drop below 90, training session's over. So that might be one sprint. That might be 15 sprints. That might be five sprints, which is like, that is, that is a no-no in the fitness industry, right? Like I have an hour, I have to do something for an hour. And if it says 10 reps, I have to do 10 reps, which again, if you're playing the short term, Yes, in the short term, that is what I wrote on the whiteboard. But if we're playing the long term and we want to come back and do this again tomorrow or three more times this week, uh, I might make a different decision based off of minimal effective dose. So um, Charlie Francis, if if, if you're not familiar with him, you don't have to be a sprint coach. The the philosophy that he was using in the 90s is still applicable today and it's a really it's a really great read um, for anybody Mm -hmm. and it kind of reminds me the way that we do our time sprints at mbsc so the athletes will warm up throw their med balls and then we go in and we do our sprint work and we do we for people that are familiar we time 10 yard splits right so they first come in we get their standing 10 yard dash time then over the weeks, we start to move them back, right? They, they fly in by five yards, we get the 10, mark, 10 yard split. They fly in by 10 yards, we get the 10 yard split. They fly in by 15 yards, we get the 10 yard split. And we build that over the course of the program. But on a daily basis, they're really only doing two to three max effort sprints, but they're 100% effort. And so it's a much more potent stimulus than if they're running it, you know, 85%. And so the reason we started timing sprints uh, a la the Tony Holler feed the cats idea is that when we were telling kids to run hard, they don't really <laughs> run that hard. Uh, no matter, even if you say run as hard as you can, you're going to get a sub 90% effort every time because it's just hu- at natural. They're not, uh, they don't have something driving them. They don't have right. external feedback like that time. The second we put the laser timers out and now we have a big scoreboard up on the wall so they can see their time. And so can everybody else competition gets everybody going. And so, we, we record their times every time they come in and we have the rule is if they PR, oh. they stop. And if their time goes down on their second or third, they stop because if they PR, they're not going to PR again. Yeah. Generally speaking, like if I see a kid shave like a hundredth of a second off their, uh, their 10 yard split, I, I know that they're probably not going to get better on this, uh-huh. on the third one. So I'll be like, Hey, chalk it up as a win today. Let's go lift. Then we we go do all our stuff in the weight room. And, you know, best we market and keep going forward. And that has helped us, one, to prevent injuries because typically if they start running under fatigue and pushing, that's where you're going to, they're going to come up and be like, oh, my hip flexor sore or my hamstring sore. Um, and so it, for us, th- these kids keep getting faster week mm-hmm. to week to week. Um, and we're not seeing them get beat up um, because then they typically have to go to practice at night or they have a tournament on the weekend. So we can only fit so much juice in that each week so to speak for them to continue to train with the, the right football direction. team i'm working with what i've done is <clears throat> the after you've run so usually you'll run the first one the second one the third one and, and by the third or fourth one that's where you're you're staying you're lower than the first two or you're pring usually not all the time like you said sometimes it could be the first one my general rule of thumb has been if you are 0.1 slower two times in a row. So, for example, if you run a 1.2, 
and then you ran a 1.31 and then a 1.33 sessions over. But if you ran a 1.2 and then a 1.3 and then a 1.2 again, we can keep going. So two times in a row, you are 0.1 slower than your fastest time. That will end the workout for me. So it's not an exact science, but again, we're going, but if my goal, like you're saying, my goal for the football team is max effort sprint and getting faster. I don't want to practice getting slower. <laughs> so I'm going to cut the workout mm -hmm. as soon as, oh, we've got a visitor, Sonny. Sonny is Sonny's the, here yeah, with a ball great. for you Sonny, too. Please go. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to bring up a little <laughs> thought experiment for everybody. If I can gain two pounds of muscle and 20 pounds of strength in my hips, but I can do it with a, with less load on my external system. So we're going to use the back squat as an example, and we'll say single leg squat, all right? There's two ways to roam, but do I want to take the street that is paved and smooth, or do I want to take this, the, where I have to create my own path and I have to chop down all the trees and the, to get there, right? Do I want infinitely more work or do I want less work to get the same result? So if I can do, say, five sets of five single leg squats, and I'm going to below parallel to a box, and I'm reaching just a five-pound weight in front of me, if I can get two pounds of muscle and 20 pounds of strength added to my legs, I would take that over putting a heavy, heavy bar on my back. Because um, over a long period of time, again, we're playing the long-term game, the barbell on the back is a much bigger stressor from a load or from a stress perspective compared to the single yeah, leg CNS. squat. And I have, I got the same result, right? Now, this is an, oh, this mm -hmm. is definitely an oversimplification. Yes, back squats might do it faster or, but I'm just trying to I'm trying to give everyone a thought experiment. So if you had the choice and you only had one choice, which one would you pick? Right? If you got to the same result, but one one required much less equipment and much less stress on the on the entire system, you'd pick the one that had less stress and required less equipment. Uh, it, in a, yeah. in a perfect world, in a, a um, in an optimal world. Yeah, and so it was funny. This week, we had Lee Smith. Uh, he's an 11-year mm -hmm. NFL veteran. Uh, he just retired. He was with the Falcons. He was with uh, Buffalo. And he was with, I think, San Francisco. And so he's opening a gym. So he spent the week with us, with uh, his business partners. Um, just kind of observing what we do in the gym because they're trying to open a similar model down mm -hmm. in uh, Knoxville. And we were talking to him about training and what he's a big guy. He was a tight end. And he was saying like all the guys, like none of them liked back squatting. I yeah. <laughs> um, think they've been back squatting their whole career in high school and in college probably. And he said, generally, he's like, we would just feel like shit for a few days afterwards. 
And so he said, like, anytime we could do something that didn't put as much external load on us, both from a structural standpoint and from a central nervous system standpoint, they generally felt better. And so, again, think about, like, the, the week-to-week experience of, like, an NFL athlete or a college athlete who has to go to practice and has to go to class and has to travel. Um, they, they don't want the repercussions of, you know, a 400, 500-pound back squat week-to-week when they have to continue to compete. And so, again, the Alex Natera stuff really sealed it for me when he looked at the research and he realized, like, we're getting the same loading equivalence in a single leg squat with 50% body weight. So for me, I'm like 220 pounds. If I have 110 pounds between vests and chains and dumbbells, I'm getting the same loading equivalent through the lower extremity with less than half the load on my body, right? So again, we're thinking about efficiency and it's not to say that those other approaches aren't sometimes indicated, right? In certain instances, you probably, you might want to do those things. But again, the, the thing I hammered in my talk yesterday was pick the right tools for the job, uh, for the athlete, for the client and for where they're trying to go. And very often that minimal effective dose idea is going to be, be pertinent. And I think that sometimes strength coaches and personal trainers just worry that they're not doing enough. Right. And I think you would be surprised at how little it takes sometimes to actually continue to get people better. Um, because I think sometimes in fear of the the idea that we're not doing enough, we just be like more volume, right? More volume that'll get them tired. And again, our job isn't to get people tired, it's to get people better. And so I wanted to do a screen share from a presentation I did uh, a couple of years ago with some interesting research. So I'm just going to bring this up here. Um, for you to see. And let me. I can see, see that it. there. Make sure you explain it for anyone. Who's All right, so not this was interesting. <laughs> I'm going to. Okay, so yeah, so if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see this, but this was a really interesting uh, study. So they took a bunch of older adults. I think these were guys like in their 50s and 60s, and they had two groups, right? And they both did for 12 weeks, right? They did progressive resistance training. They were training um, three days a week um, at around 80 to 90%, uh, like training hard, uh, even over 90%, and like basic full body strength three days a week. Um, and as, if you're watching the chart here, they all got better. They all improved their numbers over 12 weeks by about 50%. They all got significantly stronger in that training window. And then the two groups split. Right. One group did nothing for six months and they continued to retest their strength and see how they declined and how they detrained. And then the other group for the next six months just did one time a week at three sets of 10 at 80%. And they actually continued to get 2% better. And now, again, we wouldn't want someone, we wouldn't encourage somebody to only train one time a week at 80%. All right. That might be lower than um, the desired amount of effort. But it goes to show that you don't need a lot to continue to maintain or improve. And when you talk about training for the long haul, right, there's competing demands in people's lives when they have families and jobs and other conflicting things. And so it's, I hammer home the message to our clients that, you know, like, they're like, oh, shit, I only came in one time this week. And I'm like, you know what, that's fine. That's one week out of the 52 weeks of this year in the years and years that we're going to continue to build and develop you uh, physically um, over time. And so to realize that like, listen, 
people miss workouts. Like m- people always ask us like, Hey, do you guys program deloads yeah, right. into your training programs? I'm like, no, life, life is a deload. There's, it's going to program it for you, generally speaking. Um, and so as long as we're f- focusing on always trying to get workouts in when we can, then we're going to be okay. I remember Mike talking about in-season training and just talking about, you know, trying to avoid missed lifts and making sure you just get one or two quick lifts in a week. doesn't have to be an hour. doesn't have to be 90 minutes. We just want them to get in, work hard for a short period of time and get out. And so if you're working with athletes in season, this is really important to think about as well as just with general population, um, because they're going to miss workouts due to conflicts with work or with travel or with family. And so this was really cool research to look at because it just showed that like it doesn't take that much. And we always are going to encourage people to do more, but it's important to also shine the light on uh, the fact that it's not the end of the world. People do miss workouts. Um, And then there was more research that looked at like what was the minimum effective dose for maintaining aerobic capacity. So they tested a bunch of uh, athletes aerobic capacity. These were actually competitive athletes, I think cyclists, um, and they looked at their VO2 and their aerobic max, their uh, max aerobic speed. And then they tried to trend down to see what could they use to maintain aerobic capacity. And they said four to six maximal effort, 30 second sprints per week was adequate for them to just maintain their level of fitness. And that's, I mean, that's two to two to three minutes of work every single week with a, a long rest in between. So high quality efforts, um, but done very minimally from a volume perspective to keep people fit. And so, again, I don't think we have these ideas where people are like, they need to work out for hours at a time. Um, when in reality, we can continue to at least maintain people's levels of fitness in times in their life when they might have trouble getting to the gym or putting in a couple hours every week. Um, and then once they have more time to dedicate, we can kind of get back to that normal routine it's- again. I almost want people to think of this or what I just thought of when I saw that chart was you've got one group that takes both groups took five steps forward, but one group took zero steps Mm -hmm. back and the other group took one step back based off of the percentages you just showed. So one group was 2% better after six months. The other group was worse by 10%. So, but they both got 50% Mm -hmm. better over a long period of time, right? Five steps forward, one step back, you'll eventually get back to zero, but five steps forward, zero steps back, you'll maintain. And then hopefully if you start training again, after you've got either more time, more energy, um, something happens and you now have access to more more equipment or uh, a better regimen or whatever it is, you can just keep moving forward, right? So you're always going up. So my five, zero, three, zero, two, zero, you're always improving. But if you're always going five to one, then one, one to one, three to minus two, right? You're not going to reach the same levels of fitness, whichever, whatever fitness is to you. Um, yeah, and I'll put I'll put the references to those research studies in okay. the show notes, so people can see them. I think I have a couple other ones too. We can drop in there, so people uh, always end up asking, "Hey, can you send a reference?" So I'll I'll drop those in the show notes uh, when we post it as well, so you can check those out. Um, and and it, this reminded me more of that in season training I did. People always say like, 
always aim to get stronger in season, but sometimes aiming to get stronger in season just means right. maintaining in season. So that intent and effort is there, but the frequency uh, or volume might not always be there just because of all the other conflicting demands that people have. And that's true for general population right. as well. And the, the other thing that was brought up for me was how strong is strong enough. So if we go back to this bilateral or, or back squat, front squat idea, I love front squats. I don't back squats for, don't do back squats for multiple reasons. We won't get in that here, but maybe it's, you get to one times body weight. So if I'm 220 pounds and I can only back squat a hundred pounds, that's a problem. Like I'm probably not going to be able to do single leg squats. Like we need to work on your bilateral yeah. back squats, front squats, goblet squats. But eventually if I can get to 225 for five reps, okay, is continuing to load that system with a heavy barbell on my back and getting to 300, 400, 500, 600 pounds, can I get that same result with moving to more single leg squats, to more whatever for the legs? It's a question that you have to ask yourself. So how strong is strong enough? If I'm a baseball catcher is back squatting 400 pounds important. I'm going, my, I'm going to vote. No, that once you get to body weight on a front or back squat, I don't really need to pursue that. any. I don't want to lose it, but I don't really need to pursue that specific exercise any further to make you a better X, Y, Z. I'm using catcher and baseball as the example. Uh, to be, yeah, and I always reference that this since the instance that I had at the gym, like we had a very good collegiate mm -hmm. baseball catcher, and this is even a split squat example. So it's not just we're not just piling the bilateral idea. It's for any exercise. I remember we were testing rear foot elevated split squats, and he had uh, 120 pound dumbbells, so 240 pounds, and then he had a vest that was 40 pounds. So we're at 280 for him uh, in, in not even including his own body weight that he has to lift up. And when we tested, we were just doing at the time. We were like, let's just pick a load and max at, max rep it at like as heavy as we think we can get. And he did like 17 reps <laughs> on each leg. And he was division one baseball catcher, never made it to major league baseball. Um, he didn't make it, not make it to major league baseball because of his leg strength. I would, in fact, I would say he'd probably be one of the strongest guys in the MLB if we brought him in there. It, it wasn't worth it for him. And in fact, it probably would take away from his ability to develop speed, develop power and develop his baseball skills. Cause in truth, he probably needed to go hit practice yeah. hitting. He probably needed to go be a better <laughs> catcher. He probably needed to, uh, have a, have better arm strength, throwing the ball. Um, and sometimes we kind of pile against strength coaches always like, oh, too much sport practice. He probably needed yeah. more sport practice. Uh, he was great in the way room. He'd be a great weightlifter. Um, and so, again, sometimes we think like everything needs to be done in the weight room. But in, in that instance, and we see that a lot for we like you've worked at NBSC for long periods of time. You saw kids who were 13 who then you mm -hmm. were training in their 20s. And like so by the time they get to there, they're really good lifters. They're really strong they don't really necessarily need to get better. And I remember Mike training an NFL lineman that we had for a decade and just seeing him like trap bar. He was like, it was easy for him. He was trap bar and like four or five, like it was like uh, nothing. And I remember I was younger asking Mike, like, are, like, are you going to really try to push that? He's like, no, not really. Uh, I just need to get him to the next contract. Like he's strong enough. He had a 12 year. He's already NFL made career. it. 
he's strong enough. Yeah, and, and so we just had to maintain that quality, keep him feeling good, and then really maintain his power more than anything else. The strength bucket was filled for this this uh, 300-something-odd-pound individual. Like, he didn't need to get that much larger. In fact, if we continued to pile on, he probably wouldn't feel as good. And so uh, it's about understanding when you hit that limit, and that's part of the art of coaching and looking at an athlete or an individual and saying, okay, we can probably maintain that. And you touched on the single-leg idea of, I find a lot of people, once they get to that kind of bilateral kind of ceiling, right, they're front squatting or back squatting enough, and then we kind of take that away. If we continue to get them stronger on one leg, they don't lose that quality. You could put them back into a bilateral setting and they tend to be strong enough because typically in all those bilateral lifts, the point of failure mm-hmm. isn't the legs, right? It's the spine. And so they, they have the legs to do what they need to do. And so just just picking the right tools for the job uh, comes up again. And I don't want everyone to think that this is us just poo-pooing on squats and bilateral things. Like at some point, like no, if you could do 40 push-ups in a row, being able to do 45 doesn't make you necessarily better at X, Y, Z, whatever your goal or the task is. I, I would, you, we want to spend that time on something else. Uh, use that energy. Uh, here's the, the kicker is minimal effective dose isn't a way to do less. It isn't a way to yes. cop out and say, oh, well, then I, if I just do three pushups a day and a couple jumps in my backyard, then I'll be strong and fit. No, it's that's, that's not what we're saying here. And that's exactly what people do on Twitter and Instagram is they spin it and they say, Oh, well, you're just saying like to not do anything. No, that is not what we're saying. We're saying at some point you have to ask yourself how strong is strong enough? Is there something else we could be doing to get the same result without all of the stressors? Okay, that's minimal effective dose. That's the art of coaching. Not We're not saying that you should take it easy. Okay, that... We're trying to impart better decision-making and just asking more questions. That's all this is. That's what minimal effective dose is. Again, so the prescription, sometimes taking three or four Advil might be the right thing, but we definitely know taking the entire bottle is going to do nothing. And we definitely know that not t- that taking one or taking none is not going to be helpful at all, right? So. Uh, doing five push-ups a day is going to get you good at probably doing five push-ups a day, and you're never going to reach a very high strength level. Okay, so we need to push the envelope, mm-hmm. but we only need to push it so far. That's that's what orthopedic cost is. That's what uh, minimal effective dose is. Um, we're not saying to not to not do these things, right? We're and you and I working for Mike and being in the functional training world and being kind of pigeonholed and we pigeonhole ourselves. That's sometimes our own problem. Uh, I want everyone here to know that we're not against those things. We're against uh, haphazardly prescribing things and just going for broke all the time. That's what I have a problem with, which is not a, uh, a bilateral issue or a functional training issue or a specific system 
issue that you like to train. It is a <clears throat> coaching issue or uh, um, an education issue. So I just wanted to make that clear that we are not saying to not lift heavy or to not do challenges or to not back squat. We are saying to make a better decision. Those movement is medicine yeah. guys are pussies. They tell you not to work out. <laughs> that's a, that's what I'm envisioning people <laughs> saying about Great. us. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to make that clear. I am um, not against well, lifting heavy and all that. It's just, we want people to make better decisions uh, based off of the context, the individual. And if I can get to my end goal, safer and i can get there uh, without long-term costs right i want to keep that cost low i want to use the the least amount of credit as possible over my lifespan which we talked about in orthopedic cost in our first episode um then this this question mark of how strong is strong enough um, what are the orthopedic costs or the costs of doing business for moving forward have to be top of mind questions whenever you're programming or working with somebody. Perfect. Brendan. Good job. You always yeah. wrap it up. Really Maybe that's me. I'm the, the I'm the closer. I'm the wrap up. Yeah. Maybe my that's niche your niche. Is wrapping up the conversation. Your <laughs> niche is starting it off. Uh, so did you get a good question about that specifically yeah. this week? Did someone say to you, hey, Brendan, like, how yeah, do I so, find my niche? Well, it was a gentleman who really wants to work with outdoors people. So hiking, running, trail, mm-hmm. trail running, um, bi- bicycling, like stuff like that, outdoors. And that's what he wants his niche to be. Now, and I've gotten this question a bunch. I think Andy McCloy... Andy McCloy and I had a pretty good discussion on Facebook. Uh, he has a mastermind group and somebody in the group had asked about finding their niche or niche, however you want to pronounce it. We'll say niche for the rest of this conversation. Uh, and I said to this gentleman who I was speaking to yesterday, I said, Listen, there's two things. So clearly pursuing your, your specific group that you want to work with isn't necessarily working at the moment because he doesn't have anybody that he can train. So part of this is financially, like you have to make money. (laughs) You have to, you have to have bodies to train who are willing to pay money in order to continue to do this for a career. Luckily for him, he has a, a teaching job and he's a, a track coach during the day, but he wants to work with more people on the side. And I said, well, there's two things that I always explain or share about finding a niche. Number one, sometimes your niche finds you. I'll use the example of me moving to San Francisco. I moved to San Francisco. Uh, My good friend, Charlie Reed, introduces me to a gentleman, Michael Ward. He's a chiropractor become good friends. His wife is a professional triathlete. All of a sudden, I become the triathlete trainer in San Francisco. I know nothing (laughs) about triathlon. I don't run other than 10 yards at a time. Uh, I can ride a bicycle, but I don't ride it further than to the store down the street to get something. 
uh, and I can swim, but I don't do it for a mile at a time. I'm not in the water for, if I'm in the water for an hour, I'm on a floaty with a beer. Uh, I'm not swimming for an hour. <laughs> so I, I understand training. I understand the movements. Uh, I understand the said principle supply, uh, specific adaptation, specific adaptation to opposed opposed demand. demand. I, I'm not a big fan of acronyms, but I need to be better with what the acronyms are when I use them. So yes, the said principle, I'm familiar with all that. So I start working with her. She brings other triathletes. And then other triathletes see what she's doing, and now they want to train with me. So all of a sudden, I'm now I'm training six, seven, eight, nine triathletes, and I'm the triathlete guy. So that's not my – I didn't plan on getting into it. I don't necessarily want to do it, but that niche found me. I believe Eric Cressy has the same story. Eric Cressy didn't play baseball. Eric Cressy, I believe, was oh, – He's a tennis right, player He was a, and swimmer a swimmer and a tennis player. Right? And he started working with, I believe it was Hudson base, the Hudson baseball team. I don't want to uh, butcher his story, but Hudson, I believe Hudson baseball is, is one of the best baseball teams in the state of Massachusetts. And they had a lot of great baseball players on that team. And one kid starts working with Eric and now he's got a whole group of them working with him. And now he's the baseball guy, right? Um, so his niche found him. Okay. So that's one way is your niche will find you. If you just do, we, this was our second podcast episode. If you do an amazing job, eventually people will find you. If you do an incredible job, your niche will find you. Okay. The second thing was, as I said to him, I said, listen, if you are training anybody right now, you got to start training somebody. And it, it can't be within your specific niche or the, the specific group that you want to work with right now, because that group doesn't know who you are, and that that group's not willing to pay you for your services right now. So if you want to start doing this, I suggest just taking on whoever, whatever, whenever, who's ever willing to pay and start with them. And what you're going to do is you're going to get so busy doing that that all of a sudden you can then shift and transfer all your energy to the specific group, which is hikers, runners, uh, cyclists that you want to start working with, and then build that up over here so one is you're kind of in that profession still and you're building up your experience you're building up your wallet you're so you can do the stuff over here that you want to do so one is funding the other so that's the other avenue that i recommended and i believe that's the one he's going to take um, not the first one so he knows what he wants to do and who it's just he doesn't have the resources right now to do that. So why not have one hand in one cookie jar, right, that you know you can get into and you know you can make serviceable for what you want to do while you try to bake these other cookies over here. So you got one cookie you can eat, the other cookie you're baking, and you're going to eat later. And then hopefully – all your analogies have gone back to cookies. <laughs> Oreos. Yeah, Oreos, uh, baking cookies. I, I'm going to have to have some cookies today. But that was my – and this is a Gary V concept in Crush It. Uh, that was the first book, a little side story. Mm -hmm. That was the first book I think you and I read uh, maybe together. That sounds weird, but the Brevin story begins. 
You read, you, yes. We would read it to yeah, each the other. The Brevin story yeah. begins in a class at the University of Massachusetts, and this is 2000. Jeez, uh, 2007, Seven, yeah, 2008. So we're aging ourselves here. This is almost 20 years. Uh, no, 15 oh. years ago. <laughs> we're reading the book Crush. It's it. a long time ago. This was Gary Vee's <laughs> first book, and it was all about whatever it is you want to do specifically, whatever your dream job is, that's your side hustle. So during the day you work your normal job, maybe you're like a, a janitor or you work at McDonald's or you sell retail, at, at whatever. You do what you need to do to pay the bills and to have uh, a roof over your head. When you get home at night or during the day or in the morning, you're working on that side project, that side hustle. So that's what I'm recommending here is you're, you're doing something that is – fitness to support your lifestyle and what it is you want. And then the group that you want your niche to be, that's your side hustle project. Mm -hmm. And you made a good point. Like if, if income is an issue, you have to prioritize that first. Cause if you don't have any money coming in, you can't really mm -hmm. pursue anything. If you're in a place where you're financially comfortable, you can probably devote more time and energy. And if you're coming from outside of that niche, like Mike Boyle wasn't a hockey player. That's 90% of our business from an athletic development standpoint. Mike it's, was it's a swimmer it's and one a power regionally, <laughs> two. One, one thing, yeah, one, nothing, nothing like the hockey. One thing that uh, is really important is your geography. Like, if I live in Boston and I want to train NFL athletes, it's not a good place to be, right? They don't, they're not here in the off season. They, there's a reason why Exos is in Arizona and in Florida, right? Cause th you have to go to where they are. And so for him actually doing like adventure and mountaineering, some parts in Northern California could be a really good place to be or where, I don't know where he's located. Like you might want to be in Colorado. You might want to be in Utah. If you want to be with um, adventure athletes or mountaineering athletes, if that's what his focus is. And if you're somebody coming from outside of that sport to have any legitimacy, you have to be able to speak the sport and speak that experience. If I go into hockey and I'm talking out of my ass, they're going to be like, this guy has no idea what he's doing. Like, even for me, I played some hockey when I was younger and I got away from it. So it wasn't really a big part of my life. And then when I came back to MBSC and started working there, like I had to learn the game. I had to understand it. I had to start watching it because you can't have an intelligent conversation with somebody who plays a sport, an athlete or a coach um, and have them trust in you. If, if you have no idea what you're talking about. And so say this individual, this guy you're talking about, like he's doing his daily teaching and coaching job and he wants to get into that mountaineering world start to do it yourself, start to learn about it, and then build that side brand around that around that niche, right? So start posting about, you're not going to have a, uh, uh, an audience to begin with, and you have to be okay with that. And you have to start, you know, posting on Instagram or YouTube or writing articles and, um, or going in even those in-person experiences. Hey, if there's a mountaineering club um, in the area, hi, I'd love to come and provide a free uh, presentation on how you can train to get better. And then I guarantee you're going to have a, people, a bunch of people come up to you after and be like, hey, that was really, really helpful. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about what you do? And so you got to put in a little sweat equity and, and build a brand and also build some legitimacy around yourself um, to be a resource. It's, it's one thing if you already have an established name in, a, in like strength and conditioning, right? You could probably make that lateral move a little bit easier. Like Mike 
can talk about soccer. Mike can talk about football. Mike can talk about hockey, but he can speak the sport because uh, of all the years of experience. If you're someone who is probably less established, you got to start to establish yourself in any capacity. And then kind of like you said, start to travel down that road towards whatever your preferred population is to establish, establish yourself in that field. But I think it, it you don't have to play the sport. Bill Belichick never played, uh, really never played even collegiate football, I don't think. So um, you can learn the game, you can learn the experience, but you have to kind of establish some legitimacy in that Yeah, process. I will say this gentleman had done some of that work with Instagram posts and mm-hmm. like, but right. You could, you can do all that stuff, but if nobody's seeing it or, or recognizing it, mm-hmm. um, and again, that's, that's where my recommendation to him was to find anybody to start with. Um, while mm-hmm. again, you're like, you're saying that's the side hustle, like keep writing the articles. I told him to go to REI cause he's on the East coast, go to REI and just say, Hey, can I come and do a free strength conditioning class? I mean, REI wants, wants stuff like that. Um, REI is, if anyone listening is a, uh, outdoors activity store or like a Bass Pro shop, you could go in. I, I don't know if people at, uh, at Bass Pro shops are doing lots of workouts, but they have the space to do it. And again, that's your demographic that you want to do. So you work, you train your five clients during the day, and then you go to some, something free there at night uh, and back to your speaking coach thing uh, I grew up playing football and baseball uh, I'm gonna use a baseball example right now so I train I'm training two baseball players right now I have played baseball in a long time I'm mostly just watch football the kids that I train they call it the dish do you know what the dish is it's it's the ho- it's no, home plate. Okay? So when I'm speaking okay, coach, yeah. if I call it the dish, I sound like I know what I'm talking about. I'm mirroring mirroring them, but if I now talk to their baseball coach and I say, "Oh yeah, when Landon was behind the dish the other day, I sound like a genius and I sound like a specific like I sound like a baseball coach, right?" If I say if they're standing behind uh, third plate, I'm going to sound really stupid, right? <laughs> That's – so bags, they call them bags, not bases. So the average yeah, lay yeah. everybody else, right, if you're not part of the sport, calls them home plate and bases. They call them bags and the dish. So that's just one example. Every single sport, do you play on a field? Do you play on a pitch? Do you play on a diamond? Mm-hmm. Do you play? Uh, do you play with a stick? Do you play with a uh, right? So there's, there's all these like what the names of the positions are all different. The the you, tools that you use, what you play on. So just know the names of those things. It can be as simple as watching five minutes of a soccer game, right? Uh, to to learn the lingo, and now you coach everything. Um, so that's a little note on that. The other one I wanted to know is Dan John says one of my favorite things about athletics and what what sport are you going to be good at? And it comes down to two things. It's the two G's. Do you know what the two G's are? Geography no. and genetics. 
So if you live in Canada, you're most likely going to play hockey if you have good genetics. If you live on the East Coast and you like and you're good at hockey, you mostly also play lacrosse. Lacrosse isn't a thing out here. Like it is on the East Coast. No. Hockey out here uh, on the West no. Coast because of the weather. Not a lot of people are playing hockey in the South because of the weather. They play it in Canada because it's cold all year. So geography will determine also part of your niche. So wherever mm -hmm. you are geographically, now genetics, you have no control over that. If you want to be the Mountaineer or the Sherpa, you go to Colorado or you go to Mount Everest, okay? That's, that's where mm -hmm. all of those people are going or that's where they want to be. Um, you're not going to be a great Sherpa in the, the plains of Iowa. <laughs> it's nothing <laughs> in a grass field, okay? So ge geography and genetics will determine a lot. Dan John always says that, and I love that, uh, that – they're like, how did this person get so good at that certain sport? And it's like, they most likely would have been good at any sport, depending on where they grew up. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's something, if you're going to build a business somewhere, you really have to think long and hard about that. Or if you just want to build a business where you live, figure out what the most popular sport is. Now lacrosse in our area yeah. has become very popular. It's grown rapidly in the Northeast. And so we have more and more lacrosse athletes. So, We've been. I've been watching lacrosse and trying to understand lacrosse. I didn't have lacrosse in high school. No, lacrosse didn't exist, didn't exist in and my so, high school either. Our first lacrosse team was my no. senior year, and now I, every school has mm -hmm. a lacrosse team. Yeah, and so you have to understand where the changing tides are of uh, what sports are becoming popular to in your area. And if you're running a business, a brick and mortar there, you have to maybe start to shift your niche towards whatever's there. Um, because again, like you said, if you're a good generalist, you understand basic principles of strength and conditioning. Um, then from there, you can start to bend and mold what you focus on based on, you know, who is in your area. Just like even with us, when I started at MBSC in 2008, we didn't have any adult groups. We had some personal training sprinkled in, and then you were there, you saw us start to grow adult groups, right? We had a couple in the morning, two days a week, and then we had two every morning, and then we had three every morning. And two at night. And now we have, you know, from five to nine, there's a five fifteen, a five thirty, a five forty five, a six, a six thirty, a six forty five, a seven forty five, a nine. We've had to shift our niche uh to keep our business growing towards adult training. When this was originally just a sports performance facility. They had Mike and Bob had no intention of training Gen Pop people. And so being able to speak to their experience or their goals or their desires became something that we had to be uh, better at um, because we couldn't just take our adults and put them in the sports performance program and coach them the same way that we coach our athletes. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be a sport niche as much as just uh, a general niche that, that fits your business to help it the, be sustainable. I wrote this down actually, before we even talked the book range, I can't remember the author. Maybe, maybe is it David mm -hmm. Epstein? Okay. So the it book David range Epstein. by yep. David Epstein, you become a generalist first to then become a specialist so you you become very good at working with everybody and everything and it'll make you a better specialist in the long run yeah that's that's perfect 
and it's kind of fitting. You just gave I, a book I'm a closer, remember? Uh, That's... We kind of good. Yeah, good, good transition. And we're at good 55 segue, minutes, guys. so um, let's, let's transition into I know, our I just book and saw that. So. Yeah, so I kind of wanted to shift towards a financial book. Um, in my experience, talking to a lot of coaches, especially our younger interns or younger staff, they don't really have any basic financial education at all. Huge, no, huge no, problem. Nobody does. System is, <laughs> nobody does. Yeah, a huge, huge problem in our educational system is that they don't teach you how to set up your bank accounts. They don't really teach you how to invest. They don't teach you how to manage your finances. So um, a book that I read um, last year was I Will Teach You to Be Rich by Ramat Sethi. And it's very good. It's a no-nonsense, very practical, applied way to look at everything from where you should have your checking account where you should have your savings account, how you should link them, how you should automate your savings and your investments, like where you, where you should be investing, um, how you should manage your retirement and where you should be spending your money. It's very practical and it's very like modern day in a real world look at things. And I think it's very easy to get sucked into uh, meme stocks or crypto and think like, I'm gonna get rich tomorrow. This takes a nice long view of kind of how to build what he calls like a rich life where do you want to spend your money? And I like that he kind of takes shots at kind of the, you know, hey, every millennial will own a house if they didn't buy a latte or have avocado toast. That's not the reason why people aren't mm -hmm. building wealth uh, or living the, their best life financially. And he talks about that, like how to choose what is important to you. You should spend money on things that you want to do, whether you like to travel, whether you like to buy books, whether you like real estate, that's all fine. And then, but have a ruthlessly cut spending on things you don't care about and understand how to automate your savings and finance so that it doesn't become a mental burden. I think most people avoid looking at their bank, avoid looking at their investments, avoid managing their money because they're intimidated or scared or unsure. And then all of a sudden 20 years go by and you're just kind of screwed. And so I, it's a book that I've kind of told all of our young staff. And I think we'll probably give to our, our interns and young staff to read um, from a financial standpoint, because if you want to have longevity in this business, if you want to continue to do this, I mean, you don't, you, the, the revenue ceiling isn't particularly no. we're, high. We're, yeah. not <laughs> we're not making wall and street so, money as trainers <laughs> or, and doing free podcasts. And, and, and while you, <laughs> yeah. And, and while you can make some good money, if you do things right, it just means you have to be good at making decisions so that you can do it. I think a lot of people's careers in this field end early because they don't really know what to do with the money that they do make and they haven't made it sustainable for them. And so that would be my number one book recommendation. Awesome. The compounding interest is also a very big topic. Mm -hmm. Does he go into compounding interest? Okay. All right. Oh yeah. The, oh yeah. The time. millionaire yeah. next door is another very good financial book on, well, that one's mostly on compounding interest. Uh, I won't steal your spotlight. I'll stop. The buyer. Recommendation well, okay. so go, let's stay okay. on the compounding right. interest for one second. So it's interesting. I talked to any of my clients, most of which are uh, significantly wealthy. Um, they all have kind of said the same thing that like, it's the last couple turns around the wheel that really change your life financially. Like you don't realize the value of investing a Early. little bit of money yeah. every week and every month, but money in a compounding interest situation will essentially double mm -hmm. every seven years. Right. And so the last couple turns around the wheel 
when you have a few hundred thousand dollars in the bank it will be really significant because that compounding interest starts to yep. really like uh you gotta go get to vertical. year 28 though um, but it's hard That's to see thing. that it, you yep. can't get to year 28 yep. without getting to years one through seven so yeah, that's when your money really accumulates is the you're basically from 55 to 62 years old is when your money really starts working for you. Um, yeah, and all of them have told me like, listen, I worked my ass off for years building a business and working. And then once I kind of got into my 50s, all of a sudden, uh, everything changed. And now it's a great I, it, I everybody would love to, you know, in, put gamble on Dogecoin. <laughs> and become a crypto billionaire but that's not the reality for most people so building an automated plan to to build uh sustainable wealth is is a really good idea at a young age and, and there's a big difference if you start at like 20 than if you start at 30 so um but even if it's just a little bit mm -hmm. each week um and then you can continue to put a little bit more in uh in the long term we'll, we'll make we need to do a podcast on financials that's that just convinced me uh my book yeah. for the week is going to be Motivation Myth. Uh, and I should have looked at the name. I, it's Michael something, I believe. Motivation Myth. And he opens with a story about a couple individuals who went to a Tony Robbins seminar. Love Tony Robbins. Message is great. I love his energy. The problem is, is you're really, really energetic and pumped for Monday. And then Monday, you're like, let's go. And Tuesday comes and you're like, let's go. And Wednesday comes, you're like, I'm back in the same old place I was before the Tony Robbins seminar. M motive. It's Jeff, Jeff Hayden. Hayden. Sorry. Jeff Hayden, motivation yeah. myth. Motivation comes down to having a plan. Because if you don't have a plan, you're not going to be able to get out of the what what do I do when shit happens? Because what you, we talked about earlier, life is going to happen. Deload weeks are don't exist for training clients. Deload deload weeks exist for us trainers who like to work out six seven days a week. The average person doesn't need a deload week. So what do you do? What's your plan when your motivation starts to wane? Because motivation is like I mean the the best example is New Year's resolutions. I I think it's February first. I think almost fifty percent 50% or more have already given up on their New Year's resolution because they yeah. don't have a plan to execute that goal, right? So, okay, my goal is to lose weight. That's great. Like, but, like, and I'm super motivated to lose weight. I'm going to lose weight. Tony Robbins got me all pumped up. Okay, great. Like, what's your plan? And what's the specific goal that you have and when? So, okay, I want to lose 10 pounds by April 1st, and I'm going to work out three days a week and eat salads for lunch for the next 90 days. Okay, that is a specific plan, and that sh stuff's going to happen where you don't get your workouts in, you don't get your the, – the, you, you drink beer and eat a hamburger and french fries for lunch instead of the salad. Okay, but we know the plan, so I can get back on the plan once my motivation has waned instead of me saying like, Ah, oh, man, I ate that hamburger and French fries and like, uh, I, I'm just not even going to try anymore. I'm a loser. Like, the, no, it's motivation is a complete myth. It, so 
from that standpoint. Like motivation is a thing, but motivation isn't necessarily what keeps you going. It's the plan that you come up with. And his whole thing is creating that plan and that space to keep the motivation, right? Motivation in air quotes, keep the motivation going. So, and I don't know. I don't know if I just like the book because I think motivation is is BS. Uh, It's a little confirmation bias, but I do like uh, the, the, I get, I'm going to use a big word, juxtaposition uh, that most, Mm -hmm. not most, I shouldn't say most, that a lot of people in our industry take um, the rah, rah, the jump up and down, the, that stuff can only work for so long without a plan. Now, if you have that and a plan, oh, you are dangerous if you have that type of energy and enthusiasm with a plan. You can't just have one or the other. I could have a plan and no energy. That ain't going to work. But I can't just have a ton of energy and no plan. That doesn't work either. So um, motivation myth. Mm -hmm. Well, motivation comes from momentum, right? right? And so typically, like, you can talk about what you want to do day in and day out, but you see people have lasting motivation or lasting drive towards a goal when they are tracking and planning and progressing, right? So if you think about like someone who is a body composition client who wants to lose a little bit of body fat, wants to gain some muscle, a lot of times you see the motivation come from them when they're tracking their food, weighing themselves, doing check-ins because they see a result Mm -hmm. from their effort. Right. So they get a dopamine hit. Hey, I got what I wanted from this activity. So it will motivate you to do that activity. So they're conditioning themselves to care and to try. Um, If you don't have that, that's why I always tell people, you know, it's that, um, you know, if you're not measuring, you can't manage or you can only manage what you can measure. Right. And so when it comes to things like that, if you're not tracking what you're doing, it's not just because you need to see the progress. It's because that's what's going to keep you going the right direction because you're getting positive feedback from your actions. And so planning, like you referenced, does that for you. And continually going back to the plan and checking in and adjusting is what keeps you moving forward, not just you know watching a motivational video or uh, listening to your favorite pump-up song on the way to the gym. That stuff's fleeting, right? Um, so it's like cheap dopamine. We want to find the stuff that's more sustainable. New article momentum not motivation there we go bam write it up buddy we need content no we don't need any more content (laughs) this is plenty (laughs) uh what do we got coming up here um all right uh well let's see i got i'm gonna be we have the winter seminar and talk Mm -hmm. about this every week you're gonna hear about it every week (laughs) till it comes and goes february 26th 27th les spellman nicole rodriguez mark fitzgerald mike boyle myself Vinny toludo steven bigelow um, Dan McGinley, uh, at MBSC two days. Also, some people still haven't realized this. You can also live stream it. You don't have to come to Woburn as much as I'd like to see your face. You can stay in the comfort of your own home, live stream it, um, and watch it from there. And you can get lifetime access to recording. So you can see it anytime, anyplace. Beautiful. I've got Niles, Illinois with strength faction. And then I've got a <clears throat> CFSC in. Los Gatos or San Jose, California on February 27th. Niles is on February 19th or 20th. One of the two. (laughs) I always mess up the dates. 
Nice. That's okay. They're in February. Yeah, I think it's the. Yeah, I'd love to see it. See you there. Yeah. If and so yeah, check out that's listening. Yeah, we have a bunch of CFSC events coming up in New York, in California, in uh, Chicago, like you mentioned. Uh, we have some international ones. If we have some international listeners, Dan McGinley is going to be teaching over in Ireland later on this month. And so head over to certifiedfsc.com to see what we have coming up um, in the spring and summer because we're getting a lot of events up there right now. So, um, yeah, thank you guys for, for tuning in. Please, uh, if you can, listen on Spotify, listen on Apple Podcasts, listen on YouTube. And if you can leave a comment or a review or a share, that is very helpful for us. We've got some great feedback so far. So if you have anything for us or you have questions and things you want us to talk about, please don't be shy. Send us a message and, and let us know. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, everybody.